Erev Tov, everybody. I hope you're enjoying your week. A beautiful, hot, sunny, scorching day here. And uh, it's been a while since we've uh, we've met on the video conference. But nevertheless, we're back here, as I promised. Uh, Thursday night, Parashat HaShavua Shi'ur. This week's parasha that we are studying is the double parasha, Parashat Chukat Balak. And with your permission, I want to focus on the second parasha, the parasha that uh, is actually going to be read also in Eretz Israel, which is Parashat Balak. As we know, the the story of Balak and Bil'am coming together, joining forces to try and eradicate the Jewish people by means of kelalot, by means of cursing, um, is one of the uh, more well-known stories in the Torah. Unfortunately, it's not well known among many of the students that study because it is normally read during the summer vacation. And as uh, always is, stories that are read during the summer vacation uh, don't get as much attention as those in uh, during the winter time, where they can study the Parashat Shavua with their fellow students and teachers. But Parashat Balak uh, is definitely a Parashat that a person needs to study, not only for the story and eventual salvation of the Jewish people by HaKadosh Baruch Hu in his uh, changing the curses of Bilam into Berachot, some of the most amazing blessings, so popular that we even recite them during uh, uh, throughout throughout the year, even every time we walk into the Bet Knesset, none more famous than Matovu uh, Alecha Yaakov. But not only for that, but for the, the, the sole uh, reason of um, we see here a there's so much depth there's so much inner meanings to what is actually taking place in the story behind the scenes. The Gemara Masechet Sanhedrin, Daf Kuf A one o five A and B, go to town discussing what's happening behind the scenes between Bilam, the angel of God, and the donkey. Today I want to focus a little bit on this Aton. The Aton is the she-donkey, the female donkey that Bil'am is riding. Uh, as we know, the Aton is, seems to be defying the orders of Bil'am while Bil'am is riding on his way to curse uh, B'nai Israel. seems to be going out of the way, waving in either direction. It's smashing against walls, it's smashing against fences. Bil'am doesn't really know what's going on. And un- until finally, the, Bil'am, the, the, the donkey begins to talk. Can't help but but uh, think of uh, the movie Shrek. Now, for those who have seen the movie Shrek, the donkey over there was one of the main characters. You know, he was uh, actually a very amusing character. Whenever I hear of a talking donkey, reminds me of that film Shrek, but also reminds me more of Parashat Balak. So the, the Bilam is getting upset at the donkey, and the donkey begins to speak. It begins to speak because Hakadosh Baruch Hu made it speak. The Pasuk writes in Perekaf Bet Pasuk Kafchet simply Hashem et Piaton that Akadosh Baruch Hu opened the mouth of the donkey and allowed the donkey to speak. Now this mouth of the donkey, this Piaton, is something that has special status in this world. I know this because in Perkei Avot, in the fifth chapter of Perkei Avot, Mishnah Vav, six Mishnah, the, the, the Mishnah tells us that there were, se- there were ten things 
that were created on Friday, Ben Hashem Ashot, in between the um, uh, in between the Shema, which is after Shkiah, before it actually became night, on the first ever Shabbat in history, the first Friday, or just prior to Shabbat, the first Friday, ten things were created just before Hashem rested. And one of those things is Pihaton, the mouth of this she-donkey of Bilam, was listed as one of the ten things that was that was created solely for this purpose. Uh, and on on the first Friday of of creation, now the this incident in which Bilam's donkey miraculously acquired the power of speech is very very perplexing, but for several reasons. Number one, why is it necessary for Hashem to perform such a miracle? Uh, if you stop and think about it, uh, it would have been suffice. If Hashem maybe just sent an angel like he normally does when he wants to send a message to someone, he want to send a message to Bilam, why don't you just send an angel to rebuke Bilam and tell him, hey, you know, wh- wh- where are you going? What are you doing? Why are you striking Zekita? Why are you striking this nation? Um, and and uh, or or hitting the animal for it. would have been amazing. Now the angel did go there, but why make the animal talk rather than? providing the animal with this unique gift of speech, and we know how precious the gift of speech is in order to deliver the message, why don't you just bring an angel to, to send that message? Second problem is, is why is it necessary for a unique act of creation to be dedicated to the piato, to the donkey's mouth? Why is it for? Even the most profound miracles are not associated with the unique act of creation. It doesn't say that Kadosh Baruch Hu created Yamsuf on the sixth day of creation right before Shabbat so that it would be split. Right? Now, the, the, the Mateh of Moshe, the staff of Moshe, was indeed one of those things. But, and, and again, this is a miracle, no question, but again, we've seen many, many powerful moments of history that are not connected or associated with the unique act of creation. So what is exactly special about this miraculous uh, event, uh, some want to say that the 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 answer is because en en chadash tachat hashamish. Shlomo Amelech writes in Kohelet that there is nothing new under the sun, meaning that after the six days of creation, Hakadosh Baruch Hu never created anything new. It was therefore necessary for the mouth of the donkey to be prepared during that time. And although there are things that sprout from the earth, and for us we perceive them as new, but they were never new. They were always there. The tree that grows in that spot was meant to be there, or was meant to grow in that spot, and was set up to grow in that spot um, so many thousands of years ago during the six days of creation. So the, the, that's according to the Midrash, that the reason why Kadosh Baruch Hu created that, because it can't be, and so it has to be there from before. But nevertheless, the fact that HaKadosh Baruch Hu dedicated a, an independent act of creation to the donkey's mouth, again, indicates one thing, that this was an incident of great, great importance. So it's important for us, it's incumbent on us to explore the nature of that significance and understand what lesson is meant to convey uh, to, to me, to you listening, and, and, and for all of Klal Yisrael. Um, the following words of Torah 
tonight are going to be taken from the Sefer Darash David, which is from David Hofstetter. It's an amazing set of, uh, of Torah commentary that uh, I encourage people to, uh, to go out and purchase if you're looking for something, a new read. He's got tremendous, beautiful insights on the parasha. So this is what, he's, this is what he wishes to say um, into answering those questions. Again, just to recap, for those that walked in, we have two questions. Walked in, sorry, those that joined. Uh, we have two questions. One, why is it necessary for HaKadosh Baruch Hu to perform a miracle of opening the mouth of the donkey? Uh, it would have been just uh, suffice to send in an angel. And second, why why associate this miracle with an act of creation, being that the Piaton was created right before the onset of Shabbat? So to answer these questions, um, says uh, Darash David, Sefer Darash David, says you have to answer a different question. The other question is, is why was Bilam the chosen prophet for the non-Jewish people? Bilam was wicked. Bilam was corrupt. Bilam was a man so lowly, so degenerate, that the Gemara tells us that he even committed immoral acts with his donkey, bestiality. He created with the, he, he was with his donkey. Why would HaKadosh Baruch Hu bestow that gift of prophecy, of nevuah, to such a low, horrible individual? Uh, the truth is, the, the, the nature of Bilam's prophecy was widely different than that what was given to Jewish Nevi'im, Jewish prophets. You see, the Nevi'im would attain levels of prophecy after going through intense, uh, we'll call it training, or more than that, it's like self-purification, sanctification of, of Holy Kedushah. You know, they, they worked hard to cleanse themselves of all the evil, of all the sin and the hataim and the avonot, the spiritual impurities, any blemish whatsoever, they worked hard to cleanse that uh, themselves of it. Think of it as like dipping in a mikveh a hundred times a day. Lehavdil, it's not the same. The Nevi'im uh, was a much uh, harder um, effort in, in order to cleanse themselves. Um, you know, the Rambam, in, uh, in the beginning of his Mishneh Torah, in the seventh chapter, talks about what it means to be a Navi. What it means to be a Navi. Who's going to be a Navi? Can anyone just be a Navi? A prophet, although we don't have him today. It's hard for us to visualize who a Navi was. And the Rambam describes what spiritual level these Nevi'im actually reached or needed to reach in order to uh, attain and retain the word of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And this is, and I'm going to quote, prophecy only comes to a person who has vast wisdom, whose Yetzel Haram never overpowers him with any manner. Um, he separates himself from the ways of the people. He lives in, uh, in, 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 the, in darkness, meaning, again, a form of isolation. He acts with alacrity. He trains himself to never devote any thoughts to empty manners, matters or impure thoughts. And we're talking about really, really holy people. Le'avdil mi le'avdil. We have Bilam. Well, before I get to Bilam, who was the epitome of, of Nebuah? It was Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu reached that exalted level of self-negation that the Shekhinah spoke to him. Kilu, he was friends. And for that reason, Moshe Rabbeinu was considered... The Nevi'im of all the Nevi'im. So, so, on the other hand, you have this man, Bilam, unlike all the other prophets that were sent to the Jewish people, 
Bilam ne never sanctified himself. He didn't engage in any form of preparation to receive the prophecy. He would lie on his bed and miraculously God would talk to him or um, and he would listen. Um, in terms of his personality, Perkei Avot describes the personality of Bil'am. The Mishnah teaches us also in Perkei, Mishnah Yutet, how, that a person uh, who has an evil eye and has a haughty spirit and has a gluttonous appetite, he is among the students of Bil'am Arasha. So Bil'am was so entrenched as a Maral, he was so entrenched in his lust and his material desires that even he subjugated his soul to his physical body. And that all he cared about in this world was to, to satiate his, his physical desires. And the Mishnah tells us the exact opposite of this was Abraham Avinu. About who the Mishnah states. That a person who has a good eye, a person who's humble, he's content with everything. He's of the students of Abraham Avinu. Because Abraham Avinu placed control of his, of his uh, physical body. The spiritual soul, which we've spoken many times before, took control of himself, took control of the material pursuits of Abraham Avinu. Bilam was the exact opposite. So Bilam, because his entire being was subjugated to these lusts and these physical drives, he remained entrenched in this dirt. And, and, he was, and, and even after he was granted prophecy, and he experienced this revelation of Shekhinah. And again, we don't really know what, what this meant because he is Bilam Arasha. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu used him as a tool, Kibiyachol, a vessel to receive his messages and pass him on to the nations. But Bilam himself did not internalize his own prophecies. He didn't possess any sort of um, inner redeeming qualities that would have enabled him to grow from his own prophetic uh, experiences. And maybe Bilam was chosen to serve as Navi precisely because of the fact that he lacked any spiritual qualities. See, Bilam transmitted the words of Akadosh Baruch Hu, while his prophecy had absolutely no impact on how bad of a state he was. It didn't help him grow whatsoever. And that was a, a, a contrast to what all the other prophets of Bnei Israel were, the other prophets of the of, of Bnei Israel, they 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 tried to emulate of Moshe Rabbeinu, the greatest of all prophets. They reached the Nevuah by sanctifying themselves, climbing to even greater uh, greater heights in spirituality. So we can maybe say, says Darash David of David Hofstetter, he says that maybe the miracle of the speaking donkey was just another illustration of this point. How is that so? Even after Bilam's donkey was granted the gift of speech and it was allowed to talk to Bilam, it still remained a beast. It still remained an animal. Vadai, when it spoke, the donkey didn't attain this new intellect um, of, of the meaning of its words. It was the vehicle of conveying a message to Bilam. That's all it was. It remained unaffected by its, by its own speech. Um, and the same was true with Bilam himself. The donkey represented who Bilam was. That even after Bilam was able to speak out words of prophecy, he was unaffected by the words that he spoke. He remained as sinful and as degenerate as, as, as he was in the beginning. 
So maybe now we can understand why the Midrash tells us that after the donkey spoke, it was put to death. That's what the Midrash writes. When you look at this Midrash, it's hard to understand. It's perplexing. Why should such an incredible creature, which miraculously acquired this gift of speech, the power of speech, be destroyed? If you owned an animal that was able to speak and started talking to you, would you kill it? God forbid. You'd sell it on eBay and make yourself $5 million. Who knows what is that? An animal that's talking? You'd be the richest man in the world. Why would you kill an animal that had this um, ability so suddenly? So the, although maybe that's what we said answers the question. Although the Midrash tells us that the donkey was destroyed to preserve Bilam's honor, because if you're going to kill somebody, kill the animal, not kill Bilam. Okay, but that doesn't really warrant to destroy the animal for for no for, uh, for such a miraculous being. But based on what we said, it makes sense. We're suggesting that the destruction of the donkey, the killing of this animal, was of no consequence. How do I know it was of no consequence? Because the donkey remained nothing more than a donkey. It was a simple donkey, even after it, it rebuked Bilam, even after it spoke to Bilam, because it was unaffected by the miracle that took place of it. So Bilam's donkey didn't acquire a new status. It didn't become now the holy donkey of Bilam that can now speak. No, it became just back to what it was, a donkey. And the fact that the donkey could be destroyed to preserve Bilam's Honor illustrates its similarity to Bilam. It was able to be. It was able to be killed simply because it because it be it remained insignificant. It remained mundane, worthless, just like any other animal. Just like Bilam's profound message had no impact on its essence. It impacted the Jewish people, but that's fine because that was his job to convey the message. But on him, nothing. And maybe that's the reason why HaKadosh Baruch Hu chose that Bilam ride on a donkey rather than any other animal. First of all, normally kings or those of, of importance would ride on mules or horses, not a donkey. But maybe HaKadosh Baruch Hu chose that Bilam rode on a donkey more than any other animal as an instrument for this miracle. The donkey is a hamor, we call it a hamor, is a symbol of materialism. Chomriyut is what we say, says, says the Maharal. The, the, the miracle that occurred through the donkey demonstrates that even those Gentiles who rise to the level of prophecy still remain on the spiritual level of a chamor, of a donkey, with respect to their own uh, perceptions of what that uh, prophecy actually meant. It would take this a little bit deeper we can maybe understand now why the mouth of the donkey uh, needed to be created independently independently during the six days of creation. Like we said, it was one of the ten things that were created on Erev Shabbat Ben Hashem Ashot. A unique act was necessary to produce Bilam's talking donkey. Why? Because it would be something that can go can be abnormal, can go, can be, can, can penetrate beyond normality, yet not be affected whatsoever by the infusion of the spirituality or the prophecy that it would receive. The phenomenon of an animal that could receive a divine gift, such as speech, something unique only to human beings, 
and remain a lowly animal, remain a chamor, a donkey, could not have come into existence unless it was specifically created, unless it was an independent act of creation. So therefore, HaKadosh Baruch Hu performed this miracle rather than dispatching a malach to let Bilam know and rebuke Bilam in order to demonstrate this amazing phenomenon that it's possible for something so lowly, a lowly creature like a donkey, to be infused with a spiritual power of speech and not be elevated by it. Unlike unlike the average human being. Bilam's donkey was there to serve as a lesson to Bnei Israel that the prophets of the nations were just conduits of the word of God to be conveyed to the world, but their own inner essence was not affected, had not been affected by any way of their spiritual experiences. What a fundamental difference, says Rav David Hofstetter, between the Jewish people and the Gentile nations. The nations of the world have always possessed uh, very, very prestige philosophers, men of extraordinary wisdom, yet all of their intelligence, their exceptional intelligence, has not been manifest in their actions. You don't find it in their actions. Time and time again, the great thinkers of the nations have demonstrated to the world that they remain subservient to their bodies and their animalistic drives. None of their um, lofty perceptions have succeeded in lifting them out of that uh, decay where they find themselves in, allowing themselves to be driven by their animalistic instincts and, um, and impulses. And even today, as level of education you can be argued as never as high today as it was uh, um, in previous generations. People are smart today. People are wise they're able to study. There's so many different ways that a person can acquire knowledge. We speak about this in our Mishle class. Uh, uh, and as so there's a level of education throughout the world rises. Yet, what do we see in terms of the morality among human beings? A decline, a moral de- uh, a decline of the masses of the human beings because they remain dominated by their physical uh, desire. Something that happens as their education rises. But the opposite it's true of those people who follow the Torah, who follow Hashem's Torah, who succeed in va- uh, van- uh, in, in vanquishing their uh, evil inclinations, their y- uh, Yisrei Hara. The wisdom that we acquire leaves a mark on us. It becomes something that we seek constantly, and and makes and makes an impact on all of our lives. In addition to that, uh, it also teaches us a fundamental lesson that it's possible for lofty, holy, meaningful words filled with messages of Kedusha to be spoken by someone who has not reached a spiritual level with the message he delivers. Who would have thought that Bilam Arasha would say words such like Matovu Alecha Yaakov Mishkenotecha Israel? Unbelievable, he's saying these words. But when the person himself is not holding by there, it is possible. An individual's true character is not measured by the ideals or by the words of which he speaks. Uh, those, those ideals, those words need to be manifest in the person's actions and in his deeds. Uh, his spiritual level and the degree to which he strives for self-improvement 
and self-purification. I like the Jewish prophets who went through all that struggle in order to reach that level of prophecy. And therefore, it's important for all of us to apply ourselves constantly to the study of Musar, to hear Torah classes, to hear Shurim, to better ourselves constantly, for that's the only way that we are able to refine our character and uh, and put all of our lofty goals uh, into action. Um, while we're talking about this Piaton, he continues in a different essay, but I think it's very, very much connected, where he asks, based on this Mishnah that said that the mouth of the donkey was created in uh, the, on, the, on the first Friday, right before Shabbat, on Ben Hashem he then asks, why did the act of creating the mouth of this donkey specifically take place on Erev Shabbat? Ben Hashem Why did it have to take place right there? If he was going to create on Friday, create Friday morning. Create, create it Thursday. Why did it have to be moments just before Shabbat started? I've read a few answers to this question, but again, since we're our, our words of Torah today are from uh, the Sefer Darash David, I'm going to give you his answer. And you can contact me privately if you want. I'll give you a, a different answer that's also deep. I read something very nice today also by uh, Pacha David, Rabbi Chani David Pinto. But so, how, uh, why specifically, again, is this piaton created right before the onset of Shabbat? If you look at all the other items that are mentioned in that Mishnah's list, um, that, that if maybe we can come up with some sort of link uh, to link these things in the special time that they were created. Another very perplexing aspect of this Mishnah is the is the inclusion of tongs. In addition to the ten, the Mishnah says, The first ever tongs were fashioned. Now you see, the rest of the Mishnah, the other items in the Mishnah, enumerate items that served an important purpose for, for Klal Israel. There was a benefit for Bnei Israel. The man the man that was going to keep the Jewish people satiated for 40 years in the desert, the well that accompanied the Jews in the desert to provide them water through, uh, again in, in the Midbar, the mouth of Bilam's donkey, as we know. All these things provided a benefit for the Jewish people. But then you have these tzvat, this first pair of tongs in history doesn't seem to have any monumental significance. It seems to be the only benefit uh, from its creation was a very mundane, practical level. Simply, God created a pair of tongs so that human beings can use the tongs to create other things when um, when utilizing hot fire or, mol or, or molten metal or whatever it is that they're making. Um, so what's the connection between the tongs and the other items that were made and fashioned on Erev Shabbat during Ben Hashem Ashod? Why was it necessary for the tongs to be created at, uh, um, at a time of such, such significance, along with the other exalted items that were formed on Ben HaShem HaShot on that first Erev Shabbat. Um, <clears throat> the Maral answers this question and explains that there is a fundamental difference between the six days of creation and Ben HaShem HaShot right at the end. He says that the six days 
during which Hashem created the world were regular, mundane, non-spiritual days of physicality. And that's why all the components of the world were created during those days. However, the period of Ben Hashem Ashot, which is right after sunset, right before nightfall, on Erev Shabbat, transcended the mundane nature of those days that preceded it. During Ben Hashem Ashot, all of a sudden we're in a new realm, we're in a new reality. The sanctity of Shabbat and the mundane nature of the weekdays are now intertwining. They're not. They're now being fused together, and um, they're, they're they're mingling. And therefore, the things that were created on Ben Hashem Ashot represented this fusion between the spiritual and the physical. They were all physical objects. The well of Miriam was a physical object. The man was a physical object. But it involved with it miraculous occurrences. And therefore, they operated on a supernatural plane, on a spiritual plane that was made necessary for them to be created at a time where we see this combination of both spirituality and physicality. Um, so the, the material essence of these items um, were derived from the physical weekday forces, but the supernatural essence of the items that emanated from the sanctity that came from Shabbat that began to take effect at during Ben Hashem Ashot. So maybe now we can understand why the creation of the donkey's mouth, the miraculous well, the man, the Mateh Moshe had to take place at this time the mingling between the sacred and the and the mundane, um, th th that it, that characterized that time was essential for their uh, their formation. But so that makes sense because we have something holy. We have the well of Miriam. We have uh, miraculous things that take place that needed to draw from that spirituality. But what we're left with is the tongs. The tongs during this time is even more puzzling in light, of, in, in light of what we just said. The reason is because it seems that tongs are restricted something totally to the physical plane. There is no spirituality whatsoever connected to the tongs. There doesn't appear to be a, a dimension of spirituality that, that can be associated with this piece of metal. So why did such an item have to be created um, at, at a time when it could be um, uh, when it could be infused with, with the spiritual on Shabbat? It seems to make no sense. So maybe we could say the following, that this period of Ben Hashem Ashot, at the beginning of the first Shabbat in history, was exactly the moment when the relationship between the physical and the holy and the sacred was established from that moment till the end of eternity, uh, for all generations to come. And that, that the creation of the first pair of tongs at that momentous time alludes to that nature, that essential nature of that relationship. A pair of tongs has no inherent function of its own. Although today you will say maybe you use tongs to scoop out food or whatever, but that could be done with anything else. The entire the the entire purpose of the tzevat of the tongs 
is to be used as a tool to manufacture other items. That's what it's for. So therefore the purpose for which a pair of tongs is used defines its value. That's all it is. If it's used to create something material, if it's used to create items of material worth, then it will remain an item, an object whose essence is that of materialism. But if it's used to manufacture items that will be used for a mitzvah, for example, if the tongs are used to create a knife to perform brit milah or a knife of shechita, then the pair of tongs in and of itself will be infused with spiritual importance. And therefore, the example of the tongs becomes the paradigm. It becomes the prime example for every other physical object in existence. Any physical object in this world that is put to use for a spiritual purpose, such as a mitzvah, becomes infused with sanctity. The knife that I use to cut my steak cannot be compared to the knife that is used to perform a shahita, that people are not going to use that meat to, uh, to, uh, to enjoy their Yom Tov meal. A material object is used in the pursuit of spirituality, becomes elevated as a result. If you remember in the classes that we had uh, last year in Mesilat Yesharim during Shabbat afternoon, Mesilat Yesharim writes again, similar, that if a person is drawn after the world, and becomes distanced from his creator, and he sinks in ruin into ruin and ruins the world with him. But if he masters himself, if he clings to his creator, and makes use of the world only as a way to increase his abodat Hashem, he becomes elevated, and the world around him becomes elevated as well. That's what the the word, the famous words of Mesilat Yisharim in the first chapter. So therefore, it's necessary for this first pair of tongs to be created at Ben Hashem Ashot because they too were composed and comprised of this fusion of spiritual and mundane. When the tongs are in pursuit of spirituality, they themselves become the spiritual, uh, the, the spiritual items because that dimension of sanctity has been infused inside them. But, on the other hand, when the tongs are just used for mundane purposes, they remain mundane. And that aspect of that first tongs emanated from the spiritual dimension of the first six days um, is what takes effect. The first pair of tongs was different. It was given this, this combination of spirituality and physicality to implant this very important principle into the nature of the world that any physical item that is used for spiritual purposes is endowed with spiritual significance what an important lesson for all of us uh, uh, listening today wherever you are that everything in the physical world can acquire it can acquire lofty spiritual value it can become an object of the spirituality the phone that you're listening the the computer that you're listening that she this year right now is became spiritual because you're listening to words of the Torah. It's not spiritual because you have to send an email to uh, someone across the world. That That is its physical form. That is something we're using in its mundane form. I'm using a computer for the purpose of a computer because it has internet access and I can send an email out to the person that needs to receive an email. But the fact that you're using a computer or your smartphone or, or your tablet to listen to words of Torah, you've now elevated that the, the physical essence of 
the smart device, the electronic device, to something of incredible uh, spiritual proportions. Uh, if it's used for the proper intent and for the purpose of achieving spiritual elevation, then you've achieved uh, exactly what you needed to in, the, in, in this world, is taking the things around us. When the goals of one's actions, um, even the mundane ones, even the mundane items around us, become infused with spiritual worth, then you know that you are fulfilling God's word. We ask HaKadosh Baruch Hu constantly, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu provide us our hearts with all the wonderful things in this world. That's all. We, we ask Hashem for a lot of things. We ask Him for a nice house. We ask Him for a nice car. We ask for a nice family. We, everything we ask HaKadosh Baruch Hu for. We, know we, have, we have lists and lists and lists of things we need God to help us with. But don't forget that last word, the last word in that request. For the purpose to serve you, the reason why I want that book, the reason why I want that microphone, the reason why I want that fancy pen, the reason why I want this new dining room table is to serve you, HaKadosh Baruch I want to have this nice dining room table to be able to bring in guests on Shabbat and on Yom Tov and on the Hagim so that people can see what a Yom Tov and Shabbat meal is all about. To have an empty dining room, to have an empty dining room just sitting there, dining room table. You know, they say in the world of real estate that the dining room is the least used room in all the house, right? So people just buy a nice piece of furniture and they leave there untouched. If you ever, if you have any friends that are non-Jews, you ever walk in their dining room, it looks like no one has stepped foot in there in 20 years, right? So for us, for the Jewish people, what are you saying? The dining room, the dining room is the most important Room in the house next to the kitchen. The kitchen vadai is the number one most important room and maybe the bathroom. But the dining room? The, what are you talking about? The dining room is so important. That's where we conduct our, our holy meals of Shabbat and Yom Tov. What? How many people have, have turned down homes, opportunities to buy homes because the dining room wasn't big enough? Right? I need a bigger dining room. I need to host my family. Because for us, we take the dining room table, we take the chairs and we elevate it. And that's just one example. It can it applies to absolutely everything. Everything can be infused with the kedusha, and this is why, this is why the tzevat, the tongs, the tongs, and the piaton, and all these other ten items were were created at that time because there needs to be that combination. It's a lesson for all of us as we go on year after year in our in our seek and a pursuit of happiness in life. Wherever that brings us, whatever we're able to acquire and attain, always remember that fundamental lesson, generating that, that true connection with spirituality in everything physical that we have. Make our bodies, make the possessions that we have be that vessel for holiness and Bizrat Hashem with that we will be zochet to more higher levels of spirituality to and the berachah that everything we see and everything we'll touch will turn into something spiritual and we will be that will be zochet to Mashiach Tzitkenu Amen Thank you everyone for joining us this evening and we'll be in touch again next week with more great shiurim. Be well.